It's amazing how God works in planning, uh, the planning process for worship, because the sermon text was selected several weeks ago, and everything went to print on Tuesday of this week, and yet this morning as I was listening to the radio and listening to a number of pastors being interviewed, uh, this particular text, which is the lectionary gospel reading for this morning, is being read and preached on in churches around the world and around our country. Now, when I first read this passage, or first looked at this passage again, I should say, uh, several weeks ago, I looked at it, I thought, what in the world am I going to find to say about this? But at least in this passage, there, there are some easy pickings. You know, there's a lawyer... Um, and there's a professional church guy. And so everybody likes to make fun of lawyers and professional church guys. And so I thought that would be easy subject matter. But as I dig, dug deeper into this passage, I realized that their dilemma is also my dilemma. That the list of excuses they were ticking off one by one is the same list of excuses that I tick off. And so the passage became very, very personal to me. Now in this passage, which we'll read in just a moment, it begins because the expert in the law raises a question which was really kind of the hot topic. In the first century, people tended to deal with theological issues culturally as well as religiously. And so the hot topic for the day was, how do you get eternal life? Now, according to a very recent survey, if you or I ask a typical person on the street that question today, the answer that you're likely to get from about half of them would be, well, I don't. You know, I just, I don't give it much thought. Because we don't, but then it was, a, it was a hot topic to even talk about in conversation. And so the conversation very quickly turns to the law, and the expert in the law quotes from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, in effect, okay do this. But the expert in the law wanted, the scripture tells us, to justify himself, to take God out of the equation and to put salvation within his own hands. And so he asks for a definition of neighbor. Who is my neighbor? As we read God's word to us, please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we are uh, preparing to walk together down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And along the way, we will meet a stranger in need. We pray simply that we would also meet you. And so, Lord, fill our hearts and minds with thoughts of you and thoughts from you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please hear 
God's word from the gospel according to Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thanks be to God, for his word never fails. In the temple, there were three categories of workers. There were the priests who were born into their positions and then were ordained, very similar to ways in which people are ordained today. They're just uh, ceremonially set aside for a particular office. There were Levites who also shared the priestly bloodline, and they served most of the time as assistant priests. And then there were a whole cadre of lay people who worked in the temple doing different things that needed to be done. So of those three groups, you had two-thirds of them coming down the road from Jericho. And the road from Jericho was not an easy road. The road from Jericho was not a long road. It was about 17 miles long. It was still 17 miles long. But it's a road that goes up and down quite a bit. At one point, it's 800 feet below sea level. At another point, it's 2,500 feet above sea level. So it's difficult territory. It's rugged. And because it's so rugged, there are a lot of places along the Jericho-Jerusalem road that robbers could hide. In those days, just as it is in many developing countries today, if there is no economy, no means of production, no way of making stuff, then the things that you had in life, you often stole from someone else. That was the only way you came by them. 
And so there were routes, and the Jericho and Jerusalem road was one that was known to be a road that robbers liked. And so at some point, and we have to read between the lines to see this, but at some point, a traveler, and we are assuming the traveler was a Jew because the scripture tells us that he was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, was attacked by robbers, and he was found lying by the side of the road. Now, he doesn't look too bad from here, but they didn't have Band-Aids then. And so there was a real ethical dilemma that resulted with each of these who passed by. And the dilemma was that here was someone who had been beaten so badly, he'd had all of his clothing stolen, all of his money was gone, his animal, if he had one, was also gone. He had no way to identify, to be identified. People couldn't tell who he was ethnically or religiously or culturally or educationally. You know, the, the main markers that you and I have when we identify people, we may not think of them in these terms, but the most obvious one when we meet somebody is we will look at their clothing. And that tells us something about where they're from, um, what position in life and in society they might have. The next thing we often make some sort of a judgment from is their language. Do they speak French or English or Spanish or whatever? And in a country like ours, where English is a common language and covers lots of ground, we often look beyond language to looking at accents. Is that a person from East Texas or a person from West Texas? Is that a person from Louisiana or a person from New Jersey? You know, what does the accent tell us about this person? Well, those who were coming down the road, and at this point it's the priest followed by the Levite, were not able to use any of those clues because here was someone who had been beaten so badly, he was speechless and he was naked. He had no clothing. So they couldn't use dress, language, or accent to identify him. And that presented the dilemma. The dilemma shows up, first of all, for the priest. Now, the priest would have been obligated by uh, law to help a fellow Hebrew. But if it turned out that this mute person lying by the side of the road was an Egyptian, a, a Syrian, a Phoenician, or a Greek, then the priest was not obligated to render any aid. He could walk on and nobody would think the worse of him. There was also the distinct possibility that since this person was speechless and unmoving, he might already be dead. And so the priest, if the priest were to touch a dead body, would have to turn around, go back to Jerusalem, and spend the better part of a week going through an elaborate series of cleansing rituals. And during that time, he would be cut off from the society around him. He wouldn't be able to uh, earn any money from uh, his priestly functions. And so he would be 
basically in quarantine for a week. Now there's also the possibility that was very prevalent in that part of the world and still exists in a lot of parts of the world today of community vengeance being exacted upon somebody that gives aid. Now today we have Good Samaritan laws really that came from this passage that are intended to protect those who render aid to somebody that they don't know. But community vengeance is a very powerful thing. I ran into that when I was uh, in northern Kenya in, in a very remote part of the country. And it happened we came across somebody who had been injured in a car motorcycle accident. And I told our driver, who also happened to be a friend, to please stop and I would do whatever I could to help this person because uh, I told our driver, even though I was not a doctor, I was better than nothing. And he said, I can't let you do that. Let's just drive on and we'll wait and we'll see if somebody stops. And later on, since I respected his judgment, I did what he said. Shortly, somebody did come by uh, that happened to be a, a local, three local people, and they picked up the injured person and took them on. But I asked about it later, and they said, well, if you care for that person and things don't go well, they'll take it out on you. That's just our custom here. And so he was saving me from uh, a potential uh, confrontation with community vengeance. So the priest, after going through all these different things on his mental checklist, was left with that basic question that used to drive me nuts when I was a kid. Do you remember that point that, that your parents would come in and, and present a dilemma to you, and you knew what the answer was supposed to be, and you were hoping they would provide it, but all they would tell you was, well, you just do the right thing. You know, I used to hate those. <laughs> it would be so much better for them to have simply told me, just like uh, the expert in the law wanted. You know, who is my neighbor? But the priest was left with this same nagging question, what is the right thing? So he decided, I better play it safe. And he walked on. Now the Levite who functioned, most of the Levites in Jerusalem functioned as assistant priests. The Levite came along and he'd seen the priest walking. So he took it, I'm sure, as a sign that if my boss walks on by, nobody's going to criticize me if I walk by. And so he passed by on the other side. And at that point, the Samaritan comes along. Now the Samaritan right away goes over and starts to attend to what we're assuming is a Jewish person there by the side of the road. The significant thing about this is that the cultural animosity between Samaritans and Jews ran so deeply they couldn't stand each other. They would go miles out of their way just to avoid contact with each other. And that goes all the way back to the book of 2 Kings. When the Assyrians took the people of uh, Israel into exile, there were a couple of conditions that were imposed on them. And one of those conditions was that the Israelites not marry 
the local people. In other words, don't marry outside your tribe. The Israelites did, and when they did, they became um, the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, from then on, were looked down upon by the Israelites. Most of those kinds of things, our cultural prejudices, are things that others just pass on to us. I remember very well, <coughs> excuse me, that's not what I remembered. I remember very well in high school, uh, there was a new kid that came in. And the new kid, whose name was Larry, was from um, another state. And he was mixed race. His mom was from the Caribbean. His dad was from Louisiana. And all of the kids, without even knowing Larry, would kind of say among themselves, don't hang out with him. You know, he's, he's not like we are. And so being kind of a rebellious kid anyway, I started hanging out with him and found out he was a perfectly fine friend and a good guy. But if I had taken the things that were being handed to me at face value, I would have missed out on a good friendship. And that was the depth of the, the conflict and the animosity between the Samaritans and the Israelites. Now the second set of questions revolves around the, the issue of if I get involved, if I do something, what will it cost me? They didn't have all those cool band-aids back then. And so it's very likely that um, the priest and the Levite, neither one had the means or thought they had the means to help the wounded man by the side of the road. But when the Samaritan came along, he made bandages and probably that meant he cut up his own clothing. He used the oil that he had taken from um, his supplies and oil was traditionally used for cleansing a wound. He took his own oil. He poured his own wine onto the wound and that was traditionally used as a disinfectant. And then he put the wounded man on his own animal and took him to the inn. And he gave the innkeeper two denarii, which was no small deal. It was like two weeks worth of wages and promised to pay him more if he needed to. Now that would be like you or I going to a hotel and having them run our credit card, signing it and leaving the total blank, saying we'll be back in a couple of weeks. If we owe you anything more, just write it in. We'll pay it. And yet the Samaritan did that. He did not count the personal cost, at least as a reason not to be involved. Jesus says, which of these was a neighbor to the injured man? The lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Instead, he says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says simply, go and do likewise. That really is the challenge to you and to me. It's to put our knowledge into practice. 
to change the things around us by letting God change the things that are within us. I happened to be in a very small village. It was about 2,000 people. They were very spread out, and they'd been attacked by a neighboring village. This was in kind of the central portion of South Sudan. And the, the attack meant that they had been burned out. A number of them had been killed. Their animals had been set loose. Their crops had been destroyed. And so at that point, we happened to be invited into a council of elders that were trying to decide what to do about the people that had attacked them. And there was, as you might guess, quite a, uh, quite a movement afoot to hit back as hard and as fast as you could. And so that discussion went on for a long time, and then the oldest member of the council, the oldest elder in the community, someone who was not yet a Christian, but had been studying the Bible for about two years, stood up to speak, and he said, you know, if we do this, nothing is going to change. This is going to be a cycle that will never end. The only thing that will change is if we allow God to change their hearts and ours. And so the tone of the whole discussion changed and they decided that even though they were skeptical, they would give it a shot. So Jesus said to the young expert in the law as God says to us, go and do likewise.